0: So, I want to start with this question. What is the most rigorous period of formal training that you have gone through? Has anyone been through basic training in, I guess, one of the now six branches of the military? Don't forget Space Force. Hoorah, or whatever they say in Space Force. I don't know yet. Has anyone been through a medical residency or some other kind of intense regimen of professional development? After my first year as a campus missionary with InterVarsity, uh, Brianna and I were shipped off for the summer to Madison, Wisconsin for what was called New Staff Orientation. And it was a crash course not just in college ministry or campus evangelism, but especially in what we called partnership development. IVCF, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, was equipping us theologically, emotionally, and practically for what it would be like to fundraise our salary and ministry expenses every year for the next five years, while also doing full-time, demanding ministry work. It was our season of preparation. And Jesus, too, as we come to the beginning of his story, we're only two weeks into our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, too, was sent into a preparatory season of formal training and testing before embarking on his public career. Yet Jesus' boot camp, it didn't take place on the tree-lined campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, on the beautiful shores of Lake Mendota, I think is that one. His took place in the unforgiving wastelands of the ancient Near East. Luke writes in Luke chapter 4, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The wilderness. It's probably not what actually comes to mind for you. Luke's not talking about some Idyllic, natural retreat, some hidden valley of unspoiled beauty that you kind of splash all over Instagram after you finish backpacking. He's talking about sun-scorched desert, a landscape described in Deuteronomy as great and terrifying, a land of thirsty ground and flinty rock, Filled with fiery serpents and scorpions. It is a terrain that was inhospitable to life. It was an uninhabited and hellish place. It was a place that was regarded as the haunt of evil. And it was also a territory that the nation of Israel knew well, because it was the site of their own training and testing. Because like I said earlier, after the Lord had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, God's Spirit led them into this self-same wilderness. It was in the wilderness that God's covenant loyalty to God, or Israel's covenant loyalty to God, was tested. We read this in Deuteronomy. Remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. It was in the wilderness that Israel's unique character and identity as God's people was forged and then refined. It was also in the wilderness that Israel came face to face with their own failure because if you read Exodus and if you read Numbers, you'll see how they recount how for 40 years that wilderness generation just continuously grumbled against the Lord. They questioned God's presence among them. They rebelled against his leadership. They toyed with idolatry. And remember last week we studied Jesus' genealogy, and we learn that he is the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, and the son of Jacob. And here we see him picking up the baton that his ancestors fumbled. He's reliving that season of testing in the wilderness. We also discovered that he was the son of Adam. And like Adam, he's going to go toe to toe with the devil himself but he doesn't go into that encounter alone. We read that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And last week we looked at that moment of his baptism and we read that this, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Although Jesus was sinless, with clean hands and a pure heart, he chose to identify with us. Humbling himself, he heeded God's beckoning call to identify with sinners and to undergo a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And in response, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. It was this display of incredible confirmation for Jesus. He experienced this tender intimacy and approval from his Father. But there was a greater purpose at work here too. As Jesus surrenders to God's will, he makes himself available for God's purposes And what the Spirit does is He descends and now He starts directing His actions and He directs Him into the wilderness because the Spirit's going to empower Him for the tasks, the assignments that God has appointed for Him. And the very first thing on the agenda, the very first assignment is to go into the crucible of the wilderness where He is harassed and needled and tempted by the devil. And this is what we read. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. I know a little secret. Most people won't remember a single thing they hear in a sermon. That's not to say that the experience isn't meaningful or strengthening, but it's true. What I have to say here this morning in a few hours will leave your brain. In a few days, even the basic outline of the message will feel hazy. And in about a month, you may forget that we even journeyed together through this particular text. And I'm not offended. I know the spirit is willing, but the gray matter is weak. What I find more surprising are the few sermons that I remember with absolute and utter clarity. You see, in the early 90s, I had a chance to hear the Reverend E.V. Hill, a black Baptist pastor from Watts in Los Angeles, preach a message called How to Make the Enemy Run. And it was on this very scene in the gospel, and he, he told those of us listening that he wanted us to know what to say when the devil talked with us which was very disconcerting for me as a young child. He said, too many of us were getting ourselves into trouble because we were listening to the devil. And he said, you can tell when you're listening to the devil because the devil always says things that are contrary to God's word. Now, we may need to pause, and I may need to explain what Luke means when he says the devil, because this is the first experience this is the devil's first appearance in the Gospel of Luke, but not his first appearance in the Bible. He first rears his ugly head in the Garden of Eden in the form of a slithery serpent. And the Greek word here, devil, is diabolos. It's where we get diabolical. It means slanderer. Devil means slanderer because that's what he does. He slanders God and he slanders God's people. Scripture calls him the accuser and the father of lies. The devil is an adversary. He is a spiritual being who opposes divine interests and puts the faithful to the test. He's always seeking to disrupt our relationship with God. His will is bent always towards evil and destruction, towards the vandalism of God's work and his world. He looks to provoke the worst in us, to get us to say, my will, not yours, be done. To get us caught up in his own error and condemnation. But the devil is more than a deceitful tongue, he's more than a vandal, he's a usurper. He seeks to take what is rightfully God's, those who are rightfully God's, and poison them to his own ends. And Evie Hill, when I was a young boy, he warned us that the devil knows what to say and when to say it. And you notice that this confrontation comes when Jesus is dehydrated, when he's scorched, when he's ravenously hungry. He's also alone. He's isolated from any community of support. He's also coming down from that confident high of God's audible voice speaking over him at his baptism. And it's in this moment... That the slanderer says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And even now I can hear Hill's voice ringing in my ear. He had said, if the devil can put an if in the mind of Jesus, imagine what he can do to your mind. So for our purposes today, I want us to look first at the devil's tactics, and then let's examine Jesus' response. So to this end, we're going to read the rest of our chapter. Verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. It's kind of flashing. It's very cinematic. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority... And their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you will then worship me, it will all be yours. That worship is not a continuous action in the Greek. It is a one-time thing. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he, the devil, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point of the colonnade, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. When I first read through this passage, it it looks as if the devil is trash-talking Jesus. Prove yourself. If you're really who you say you are, show us your power. But the more I reflect on it, I discover that the slanderer is doing something far more insidious. The devil is implying what being the beloved son of God ought to entail and what it ought not entail. And he's calling into question not just Jesus' identity, but God's Character as well, God's goodness, God's power, God's care. So, I kind of want us to go temptation by temptation and look at this. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. What does the devil assume here? Jesus hasn't eaten anything for 40 days, which is something I've never done. You can tell. And the devil rolls up and says, wait, I thought you were the beloved son, the one with whom he was well pleased. And he says something similar to us. I thought you were a child of the king. What are you out here starving for? What purpose does this serve? How is this? Is this how God shows his heart to you by putting no food on your plate? I thought you and the big guy were like this. What has it benefited you? And then Satan, he kind of leans in and he makes his pitch. He says, "You're, you're not getting it, Jesus. You're not understanding what it means to be in your position. God's favored you. He's put the resources of the universe at your disposal. He's given you the means to feed your hunger. Do so. He says, a beloved son should get his bread. And don't forget, God helps those who help themselves. See that your desires are met, your every bodily need satisfied. It's only natural. It's only what a son deserves. Why are you here in the middle of nowhere, like a schmo, with nothing to fill your belly? You call that being the cherished child Of the King. Why was Jesus hungry anyway? There's a lot of reason people fast. It's sometimes because we need to lose a little weight. It's often more spiritual than that. It's to humble ourselves, to to push away distractions, to open ourselves up to receive from the Lord, to make a conscious statement that I'm choosing. To find nourishment, not in these lesser things, but in something greater. And Jesus doesn't actually give us the reason behind his fasting. But we do know, more than anything, that the Spirit has led him into this season. The Spirit has brought him to this place for his own purposes. And he had no food Because God, for his own reasons, had appointed no food for him. Jesus had surrendered to God's will. And apparently, this is exactly where God intends for Jesus to be. It is in this setting that God will be glorified. And notice what Jesus' response is. He brings to mind Deuteronomy 8.3. He remembers that when the Israelites found themselves hungry in the wilderness, this was the lesson. And he humbled you and he let you hunger. And he fed you with manna. That which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make known to you that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Satan says a son ought to see their every bodily need and desire satisfied. Jesus says a true son clings to the will of God as his source of unquenchable life. So the devil tries a different tactic. Temptation number two is all authority, power, and glory can be yours right now. I can give you everything at a much lower cost. What you do with it once it's yours is entirely up to you. Shape the future, Jesus, as you will. It only will require one small compromise. A little jaunt into the gray. A one time bending of the knee. You see, the devil had found Jesus' hunger inexplicable. He's even more astounded by his anonymity. You say you're the beloved son of God, but what everyone else sees is an unmarried carpenter in his 30s who doesn't even have his own apartment. You're a nobody. Your PR is terrible, and you don't strike anyone as an impressive figure. And and what's your plan, Jesus? To wander the countryside, to touch some lepers, to recruit some disciples from the dregs of society, and then painfully and publicly die. That won't prove effective. This is the real world, the devil says. You'll just be another unwashed hippie, another idealistic windbag. No one will remember your name. You will change nothing. He says, Jesus, reject humility, reject slow and costly change. Jesus, I know your daddy has promised you an everlasting kingdom, but it's not yours yet, right? That's far off into the future, and only after you walk a long and hard and risky road. Only after utter rejection and apparent failure. Come on, there's got to be a better way. The beloved son should be this glorious figure, this man of renown, influential, well-respected, capable, and in command. You're the golden boy. You should know no limits. So affect your will. Step into the arena and take center stage. This is your moment. The world needs to know your name. And Jesus responds with more Deuteronomy. It is the Lord your God. You shall fear him. You shall serve him. And by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you off the face of the earth. Jesus looks right back at him and says, the path you recommend only leads to destruction. And sure, other men may have taken that deal. Remember when we first meet Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. It's at Christmas. And we say, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus took this deal. All the kingdoms of the world. And yes, Jesus says, everyone knows his name today. But his way, your way, is foolishness. His empire will fail. He will be the one who fades to a footnote in history. But I will change the world by the power of God. Satan says a son ought to take charge, be impressive, secure his glory. Jesus says a true son elevates God, not himself. He refuses to compromise God's way. Notice this, even for God's ends. He is patient. He's long-suffering. He's self-forgetful. So now, it's tactic number three. Jesus is taken to the pinnacle of the temple, and he's challenged to test the reality and the power of God's promised care by throwing himself off. He transports him to Jerusalem, to the temple, to God's dwelling place on earth, to the place where God's power and protection is thought to be most potent. It's also Jerusalem's going to be the site of Jesus's ultimate test This is where he will be crucified. And the devil is trying to provoke a crisis of trust. Jesus, buddy, you're putting all of your eggs in this basket. You're planning to go all in, no turning back. And you might do everything right. Are you certain he'll come through for you? The data ain't really on your side at the moment, Jesus, because you're sunburnt, you're hungry, you're alone. How do you know it's not going to be the same thing when you step into the gap and give your life for humanity? And then in what feels like blasphemy, Satan starts quoting scripture at Jesus. He says, two can play the it is written game. Psalm 91 says, God's beloved son won't even stub his toe without the angels rushing in to protect him. He says, your father seems a little sketchy on his follow-through. Why don't you allow him to prove himself to you? It'll just be a simple test. There's no one here to watch. This won't be an attention-grabbing spectacle. It'll just be a private moment between you and your so-called father. Trust but verify, Jesus, because seeing is believing. And if it's good, if it works, you're good to go. If you're not confident that he'll come through for you in the clutch, if this little leap of faith feels foolhardy, maybe consider again my methods, Jesus, the devil says. My methods are tried and true. The devil is twisting scripture. God in Psalm 91 promises to protect his servants through whatever befalls them. It doesn't give us an excuse to demand that God rescue us in the method and the timing of our choosing. It's not an excuse to put God to the test. Satan says that a son receives conclusive proof that his personal safety is secure. Jesus says a true son doesn't test God. He trusts him. I find the drama of this scene in the wilderness to be absolutely incredible. But what is our takeaway What is here for us to learn from Jesus' 40 days of testing? I appreciate that Jesus, who will go on to feed 5,000 and 4,000 with these two fish and five small loaves, I appreciate that he didn't turn the stones into bread. Because I wouldn't have been able to turn stones into bread in that same situation. I appreciate that D- Jesus didn't just pull back the curtain and dazzle Satan with his glory. Because I can't make Satan run away and dazzle him with my glory. No, Jesus in this scene is acting as our representative But he's also training us in our way. Jesus is full of the Spirit. And we know that those of us who have received him as our own, we are also full of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enables believers to resist the devil's lies in the same way that he enabled Jesus to resist the devil's lies through the recalling and the applying of Scripture. And again, I keep thinking back to that sermon from my childhood. How do you make the devil run? Evie Hill said, you say, devil, it is written. And I hesitate to quote, even though I can remember this, I hesitate to quote him, but I'm going to anyway, but I don't have the cadence of a black preacher, and I don't want to be disrespectful, but this is what he had said when I was little. He said, every time the devil opened his mouth, Jesus threw scripture in his mouth. He hit him over and over and over with the scripture. And guess what happened? The devil ran. And guess what you can do beginning today? You don't have to take it. You don't have to take his mess. You don't have to take his stuff. Hit him. All you have to do is take out your Bible and say, where are you, devil? Come on, devil. Let's get it on. Hit him. He's defeated. Our Jesus is king of kings and lord and lords. He said, hit the devil with the word. And I had never heard preaching like that. But more significantly, I discovered that Jesus' sure foundation was the Scripture. And I committed at a young age that that would be my sure foundation as well. You see, our adversary will always seek to cast doubt on our identity as the beloved sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. He will try to twist us up. He will try to convince us to abandon God's way of doing things, to make small compromises and easy concessions to expediency, to expect results without cost and in the method and in the timing of our choosing. He will tempt us to feed our own hungers, to bow the knee to lesser lords, to work for our own reputation, and glory. To feel entitled to a certain level of comfort in this life. To elevate our plans above God's plans. To demand concrete confirmation of God's care and God's power. And the devil will beckon us to walk a road that he promises will lead to our thriving to our freedom. But in fact, it's a road that leads only to bondage and death. And Jesus, through his example, points us to the truth of Psalm 119. Jesus could say this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not, God, sin against you. So what Bible passages do you look to when your status or your identity as a child of the king is called into question? What scriptures do you turn to when you lose your way to reorient? If nothing comes to mind, how will you go about treasuring God's life-giving and life-orienting word in your heart? So that you might not fall into confusion or rebellion. God's Spirit gives us the power to resist the wiles of Satan. To hit him with the word. To recall and apply gospel truth to every scenario and situation in our life. But can God bring to mind truth that you've never read? Reminds you of promises that you've never meditated upon. What's it say in Romans 10? Faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain and snow come down from the heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purposed. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. And God has sent us his word so that we might know who he is and know who we are and know how to stand firm, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of of lies and slander, even when the road gets difficult. He has given us the sure foundation to stand on in our every test and trial. He's given us the tool we need to make our enemy run. And it's right here. He's freely spoken. It's not secret knowledge. It's freely given, just like he freely gave of himself for us. If you don't have a Bible, we got free Bibles in the back. We got two different translations. One's easier to understand, the NLT. One's a little bit more technical, the ESV. They're all good. What's important is hearing what Jesus has to say to us. Peter, in the gospel, there's this moment where everyone starts to walk away. And Jesus says, do you want to walk away too? And Peter says, where else would we go? I'll read it to you. This is John 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The words of eternal life. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Let's be in the word so that God can bring the word out in our moments of need, so that we can be effective, that we can have endurance that we can experience a power that is not our own, but is the Holy Spirit working through us. Amen? I want to just end right here. I want to remind you how our passage ended. Verse 13 of Luke chapter 4 says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. When the devil gets rebuked on the pinnacle of the temple, he chooses to withdraw. He concedes defeat for now, waiting to resume the fight on a more favorable terrain. And in about three years' time, he's going to meet Jesus again there in Jerusalem. And on that occasion, Jesus will end up taking a leap of faith, but not the sort of leap of faith that the devil had advised. Instead, he will choose radical obedience to God, even though he knows such obedience will lead to a cross. This is the baptism he submits to on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. It is what we commemorate as we come to this table. And we are going to worship at the table, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. But this table is a symbol. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. One of Jesus' other names is the Word. And when we come to this table, what we're acknowledging is we do not find our sustenance and our power on bread. We find it in Him. In His body broken for us. In His blood shed on our behalf that we might live. And we come and we remember what Jesus did what Jesus gave. The price he paid for the forgiveness of our sins. And you know what's amazing? That we read in the Gospel of Luke that that angel that is promised in Psalm 91 for the beloved Son of God, the angel shows up in Luke's Gospel at the very end when Jesus is facing his final trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke records this Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him that answer to the promise of Scripture an angel from heaven strengthening him. But this seven heaven-sent messenger doesn't rescue him from a violent death, but strengthens him for and through his sacrificial death on our behalf. Jesus surrendered to God's will, and God was able to manifest his glory through him. God was able to use his self-giving, spotless sacrifice to rescue us, to wash us clean, to make us new. And that's what we celebrate when we come to this table. That's what we remember. That's what we praise him for. And know that when you come and eat, it is this act of faith, Make this an intention if and when you come. It's an act of faith saying, you know what? The most important thing is Jesus. It's not bread. It's not anything else. It's Jesus. So I am going to come in testimony to that conviction. That he is enough. And he has saved me. And he has brought me home. So as we sing... Come forward and receive the elements and then we will partake together after this worship song. Come and meet Jesus at his table. Again, gluten-free is the little one.